Um, well, good morning. Um, we're continuing in our series in the book of Acts, and if you're um, really paying attention, you'll notice that uh, we skipped a chapter. Um, last week we did chapter 14, and uh, this week we are in uh, chapter 16. Uh, the reason for that, I'll give us a little bit of a recap of what's happened in 15. Um, the reason uh, we did that is basically uh, we did a, a series just uh, uh, in November there on the five solas, and one of those was uh, sola gratia, by grace alone. And we spent a lot of time unpacking um, the difference between us being saved by grace and us being saved by works. And um, essentially, that is chapter 15 of the book of Acts. Uh, There is um, uh, some from uh, the Jewish background of Christians who were trying to get Gentiles, when they were converted, to basically become Jewish Christians. Uh, you need to be circumcised, you need to follow these dietary laws, you need to do all these different things. Uh, and so uh, Paul and the others that are ministering to the Gentiles say, no, that's not the case. Uh, we are saved by grace and grace alone, not by any of the works that we uh, do. And so they have a meeting, a council in Jerusalem uh, to work these things out. And uh, they uh, basically say, no, we're not going to uh, make Gentiles be circumcised, and we're not going to um, put all these kind of burdens on them. Um, and in that moment, grace was really at stake. The gospel was, was at stake. Uh, the Jews didn't understand Gentiles kind of retaining their identity after conversion. Now, um, we can be hard on the, on the Jews, but to be fair to them, um, it was a messianic promise through the nation of Israel given to the Jews. In the Old Testament, before Jesus establishes a new covenant, any converts uh, did have to practice. They were circumcised. They did have to practice all the Jewish customs in the law. And so what they just didn't understand was that Jesus had changed everything uh, and that the new covenant that they were now under uh, was a different one. And so this is uh, all very new and these things are being worked out. They're being um, uh, uh, discussed. They're looking to the scriptures uh, within this. And so grace alone is really defended. Uh, it's reiterated. It's clarified. And we spent a lot of time uh, talking about that uh, just a few weeks ago. And so we thought we would um, just uh, move on. But coming out of this, just so we'll make sense of this chapter, uh, they did basically decide here are four requirements uh, that we will ask the Gentiles to observe. Um, Basically, it was things that uh, were around some food that was polluted from idols, uh, some food that had been sacrificed to idols, uh, food that had been um, animals that had been strangled and and, uh, things done with blood, basically how meat was uh, prepared and that it was kosher. So three of these things are really around dietary uh, kind of things like that. And then the last one is uh, immorality. Uh, and particularly sexual immorality. And that's more than likely because of pagan rites, temple prostitution, things like this. So uh, you're like, well, why, why, why if we're under grace, why are they still asking the Gentiles to observe these things? Other than the sexual immorality bit, we don't observe the other ones now. We don't eat kosher food. We don't really care about you know, any of these things. Um, but we understand at, the, at this moment, the church is young, it's new. You've got... Uh, the church has really begun within Israel, the Jewish um, people, and now it's spreading out. The book of Acts, we see it spreading out to the Gentiles. And so wisely what is happening here is they provide wise policy that would really uphold the gospel of grace while preserving fellowship between the two groups. Um, if Gentiles and Jews were going to eat together, 
if they were going to have table fellowship together, which was critically important uh, custom back then, and it still is today, as we'll see, um, how they were able to come to the table together uh, was really important. And so they've asked the Gentiles, listen, will you observe these, these laws and customs? Will you eat kosher meat, essentially, um, be, so that we can have fellowship with each other in that? Um, and that's a wise example for us. There are things today that are not uh, lawful, unlawful by the scripture, but, but at times might not be beneficial. Um, and we might need to set that aside. So nowhere do we see in the New Testament alcohol being completely forbidden. Um, drunkenness and uh, uh, excessive drinking, all of those are, are dealt with very clearly and forbidden. Um, but nowhere do we really see a teetotal, you cannot drink alcohol. Um, but is it, are there times when it is wise for us as believers and Christians to forego that liberty and not drink alcohol, depending on who you're with? Um, and Paul would say yes. Um, there are times where we lay aside our liberty for the sake of others. Uh, and we see this uh, being worked out in the early church here. Um, and so we move in then to Paul's second missionary journey. We looked at the first time where he made this trip and, and churches are established. Uh, new beachheads are kind of um, taken in what is now modern day Turkey, what would have been kind of Asia, Asia Minor then um, that is there. And now we see Paul's secondary mission, second missionary journey starting to take place. And again, it starts in Antioch. Um, so they've gone down Jerusalem. They've had this council. They've come back to Antioch. And now uh, they're getting ready to be sent out. And at the end of 15, um, we didn't read this part, in their preparation for the trip, there arises a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. Um, now, Paul and Barnabas have been tight at this time. They're co-workers in the gospel. Uh, they're brothers uh, on mission together. Um, but as they're preparing for their second journey, Barnabas wants to take John Mark with them again. Um, and Paul says, absolutely not. Um, we're not taking him again. Uh, he flaked out on us the last time, and he left us uh, in, in, right in the middle of the journey. Uh, we don't know why. Maybe he got homesick. Maybe he just couldn't hack it. We don't know. Um, but he basically leaves them, and Paul's like, I'm not taking him again. Um, now, if you're Paul, you understand that. You understand how hard the journey was before, right? Stoned, left for dead. We've been beaten. You know, they're getting ready to go back into all of these places. You want people who are faithful, that are committed, that understand the mission, and aren't going to flake out on you. And so he says no. Um, but Barnabas, the consummate encourager, wants to give John Mark another try. He wants to give him a second chance um, within this. Um, and it's such a sharp and emotional disagreement that they have uh, that they basically decide to um, go their separate ways. Now, not, not in fellowship with one another, but on this missionary journey. And so Barnabas will take John Mark and go to Cyprus. And we see Paul uh, take uh, Silas, who's come up with him from Jerusalem, and they will go out into where we're here. Now, who is right? Who is right and wrong? Because we have disagreements with each other as believers all the time. Who was right? Was it Paul or was it Silas or Barnabas? Um, Kent Hughes says, our judgment goes with Paul, but our heart goes with Barnabas, doesn't it? Like our heart wants to give that person another try. Like, no, we're not beyond redemption. Like it's the gospel, Paul. Like let's exercise grace now. And Paul's like, no way. Like my, my better judgment and knowing what's ahead, no. And so we don't really know. Um, we, we see that, that there's a sharp disagreement, but God works in his sovereignty through even conflict to accomplish his will. And now there's two teams going out into 
uh, out on the mission uh, as well. And so they would take with them the instruction from the Jerusalem council, and we see God working through conflict, um, even within brothers to achieve his purposes. Not all Christian arguments are justified, um, but God is sovereign and he works through them, even when we get it wrong sometimes. Uh, And so we should be encouraged by that, should we not? Um, We should strive for unity in the faith. We should uh, uh, try to persuade one another through the scriptures. Uh, But there are times where we just, uh, there seems to be an impasse, and we trust that God is still doing his work even in the midst of that. Now, as we see here, Paul then will uh, come uh, to, back to Lystra, uh, where there was a disciple named Timothy. Uh, he was the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, um, but his father's Greek. Timothy uh, more than likely would have, um, they would have met him uh, in, on the first missionary journey, and Paul wants to take him. He's been commended uh, for his faith. He's mature in the faith. Uh, we're going to see Timothy become one of the pastors uh, within the church. Paul writes another couple letters. Timothy becomes essentially Paul's son in the ministry um, and is going to be an apprentice underneath him uh, within this. Uh, and remember, we've just had the Jerusalem council saying, listen, you don't need to make um, Gentiles be circumcised. Paul's like, got it, great. We're going to go and tell the churches that. He comes into to this place, takes Timothy, and what does he do? He circumcises them. And you're like, what? I thought we just had this big, giant meeting down in Jerusalem to decide we weren't going to do this. Now, so what is happening here? Why, why is he circumcising Timothy? Um, we need to understand, again, the customs at this time. Timothy was raised um, by a Jewish mother, Jewish grandmother. Um, so Timothy, in a sense, is half Jewish and half Greek. Um, but according to Jewish custom, um, Jewish law, in that sense, Timothy would have been expected to follow Jewish custom and law. He's being raised by a believing Jewish mother. Um, so the Jews would have expected him to be circumcised. And for the sake of the gospel, knowing that uh, what is lying ahead and, and for Timothy coming uh, along on the journey, he has Timothy circumcised for the sake of the gospel. Now, later on, Paul will have another apprentice called Titus. And Titus is a full Greek. Um, he's, he's a full, he, he's not, uh, wasn't, wasn't Jewish, wasn't raised Jewish, anything like that. And in that moment, the Jews want Titus circumcised, and Paul says, no, absolutely not. And so for the same reasons, on one circumstance, he will say yes for the sake of the gospel. Um, this is going to be a stumbling block, the expectations, and rightly so, um, from a Jewish perspective, would be that you would conform to this. And for the sake of the gospel, so that we're not um, uh, battling this uh, over and over and over again, um, we think it's wise for this to happen. But, but for the exact same reasons, um, when Titus by the Jews is asked to be circumcised, he says no. He's not a Jew. He's a full Gentile. There's no expectation of that. He's free from um, the law in that. And so we see the gospel and them having to work out these kind of messy issues. But Paul clearly has uh, the gospel at stake. Uh, he knows the, the ramifications of the decisions that they're making um, uh, that, that is here. And I love the way that they enter into uh, counsel. They're looking at the scriptures and they have to make real life decisions. Um, and that's you and I. We have to do that as well. We look to the scripture as our final authority. But there are some things that, there are, some things that are just abundantly clear, right? There's, there's no need for a council. There's no need for meetings. There, God has said, and, and, and that's it. Um, but, but we have different circumstances. We have different times. We have, nowhere does it tell you how to use technology. 
um, within the scripture. We have to work that out. What is best practice for the time and place that God has us um, living in this? And so here we see uh, these things play out. It's, it's important that we even see uh, Paul and, and uh, throughout the, the New Testament um, really focus on theological clarity. They want to be sure that they understand their theology. It's why he's going to come back and revisit churches, strengthening them in the faith. Uh, we said last week, in the faith is this kind of term that's used for the, the body of apostolic teaching and doctrine that was given to them. So they have theological clarity, but they're also engaging culturally. They're contextualizing the gospel. How he engages Jews is different than how he engages Gentiles. And we see this missional innovation and intentionality as they go. Um, and that's a pattern for us. That's a pattern for us in our church to have those three things. Theological clarity. We engage the culture and contextualize it well. And we innovate missionally and, and are intentional on mission together. And what is the result uh, of this? What is the result as we see them go about these things? In verse 5, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. God will honor these things if we will be clear on what God is clear about. Um, if we will um, engage with our culture in winsome, in wise, in, in courageous ways, contextualizing that um, to our time and to our place as good missionaries. And if we will do that with great intentionality as we're on mission uh, in innovative ways. Um, we see the same thing now. These churches, the churches that do these things, the movements, the denominations that are focusing on these things are growing in, in, in strength in their faith and they're increasing in numbers. Um, sadly, the churches and denominations that are in decline often aren't clear theologically anymore. They've lost a, a way to engage with culture. Mission um, falls to the wayside as we just try to kind of circle the wagons and close ranks. And so we want to follow the pattern of the gospel moving out. And so here we see Paul and Silas uh, embark on this journey, and we see the whole time they're being directed by God. Their plan is we're going to go back and revisit these churches. Um, and as they do that, um, for whatever reason, God doesn't allow them to turn right. If you're looking at a map, you know, north, south, like they can't go east. Their, their plan is to seeming to go into Asia. And it says the spirit of Jesus prevented them from doing that. Um, and then he works through uh, 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 visions in their life. Uh, he's directing them um, in, in, through their spirit, uh, giving them a vision of a man calling from Macedonia. And he directs their ways. Um, and this is important for us. God's plans aren't always our plans. Our plans are sometimes different than what God has for us. And so we need discernment. We need a listening spirit as they had. And we need to be obedient to his leading. Um, we all are trying to figure out like direction, right? What should I do next? Should I take this career? Should I not do this? Um, should I take a career break? Should I move uh, to this house? Should I move to this city? Should I move to this place? And so we need to have uh, discernment. We need to be listening, uh, uh, trusting that God's spirit, the same spirit that was available to them is available to us today, that he is guiding and directing us. And we come to verse 10, um, as they're moving then toward Macedonia, um, we see in verse 10, the first we passage, the language starts to change. It says, uh, and when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we 
sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And so who's this we? Um, We know, obviously, that this uh, letter of Acts is uh, written by Luke. And so more than likely, uh, scholars think this is where Luke actually physically joins uh, them. And the language then starts to, not from they, uh, did this. It's not a narrator, a narrator who's done the research and has heard the stories. Now it changes to first eyewitness hand account where he is, is joining them. It's also um, so amazing as we even see the whole Trinitarian. Uh, we've noticed this throughout the whole uh, uh, story so far. The Trinity is so active in all of this. And, and we see in verse 6, uh, they went uh, into this region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak a word in Asia. In verse 7, uh, and when they had come to Mysia and attempted to go to Bithynia, and good job reading today, like these old cities, who knows how to pronounce any of these words, actually, so um, well done. Uh, uh, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So we have the Holy Spirit, we have the Spirit of Jesus, and then in verse 10, concluding that God, the Father, had called them to preach. Um, and so the Trinity, ever-present, ever-active, God calling and sending, the Spirit directing Jesus with them as he promised he would be. And so as we see in, in this how God is guiding them, just a few points of application for us, uh, and then we'll move into really the, the, the power of Jesus uh, in these conversions. Um, first, as we look at God, when God guides through both closed doors and open doors, sometimes God will guide you with divine no's. Uh, this, is, this is where I think I should be going. This is where I'm planning on going. I start to take action in that. And for whatever reason, I just, I can't. My, my way's blocked in that. It just doesn't work out. And sometimes God will direct our paths by saying no. And here we see two divine no's. Um, they tried two different ways and it was no. And then God opened a different door for them. Um, knowing that that's where he wanted them to go. And we really are going to see the first convert that takes place in European soil, uh, recorded convert, um, because of that. And so God will open and he will close uh, different opportunities. He will guide us circumstantially, if you will. But then second, God's guidance isn't just circumstantial, it's rational. It's not irrational. In verse 10, um, and when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding, so there was... There was the, it was a conclusion. This idea of this word conclusion that's used here, is, it means like kind of putting the pieces of the puzzles together. They were gathering information. Well, we tried to go here and this didn't happen. We tried to go here. We had this vision. It seems like God is leading us here. And so their team together, putting the pieces of the puzzles together is concluding. There's logic involved. There's discernment involved. And so it's not just circumstantial. It's rational as well. Thirdly, God's guidance is personal and communal. Notice the language in those, in those sections of verses. We, them, us. Paul just didn't come out and be like, right, guys, I got it. God gave me a vision. He did. Um, but, but it wasn't just God gave me a vision, and so that's it. Let's go. Um, they concluded together. Paul uh, shared his vision with them. Um, that in conjunction with the other information that they had. And so we need counsel from godly individuals and a community together. Um, And so as you're making decisions, as you're trying to discern these things, let me encourage you, hopefully you're in a missional community, but like discuss those things. Hey, I'm thinking about this job or this move or whatever it is. Um, And that God uses his people communally together um, within that. Get counsel, get advice um, from people that uh, have a mature walk with Jesus and that you trust. We compile these things together and give us a, a picture of what God might be doing. 
And then fourthly, God's guidance often comes gradually and unpredictably, (laughs) right? There was no neat formula for this. They were in their sanding church in Antioch. They proposed to to a a good thing. Let's go back and revisit the churches that we um, went to before. Let's check in on them. Let's see how they're doing. Um, We had established elders. Let's go back and do that. Um, And that's what they set off on. But the Lord expanded their plans, I'm sure they thought this is a pretty circuitous route that God is taking us on to go back here. Um, And often God's guidance comes gradually, as it did in this. They didn't know. The Macedonian call didn't happen while they were preparing for the trip, right? If if it were me, you'd like, well, that would have been a lot handier. I could have packed an extra pair of underpants or something, like if I'd known it was going to be. But God waited until they had already started out on their journey, until they were already committed, and gradually expanded their plans as, he, as they went. And so it's important for us, right, that we, uh, how, how do we, we know the will of God? I don't believe that there's just one, one perfect, like it's this step and this step and this step, and oh, you were so close to the will of God, but you've made that one last decision, and, and you were close, but not close enough. I don't think that's how God reveals his will, certainly as we see through the scripture. We walk in the spirit. We abide in the word. We obey what God has made perfectly clear already that we don't need to pray about. We listen. We're in community together seeking counsel. God gives us his peace. And we just act on that. We act. We take that next step. And we allow God to adjust his plans. Our goal in all of this is just faithfulness. I want to be faithful. I want to be obedient and trusting that God has whatever's next there. Um, But if you're like me, sometimes I can grow impatient. And I'm like, I just don't want to be faithful. I want to know what the 20th step is. I just want to, uh, let me know what all this is. And then I'll decide if I want to to take that or not. Um, And I think God knows that, which is why he just hides that from me so much. He's like, hey, here's the next one, dummy. Just do that one. (laughs) And so when John referenced this morning that God's building his church, he's not like, that's not platitudes. Like, I I, I describe it often like this. Um, it's like, you know those dominoes, like real elaborate kind of dominoes things, and like the one falls, and then it, it like creates this big, like cool picture when all the dominoes have fallen, you're like, oh, that's amazing, right? And, uh, um, but often, like, I know, like, what's one or two, like, I just need the next one to fall, because I don't have the perspective that God has on that. I, I, I'm looking at it from the ground, like the next domino falls, and then you kind of, or you can kind of peek over a little bit and see a few, but, but I don't know the full big picture. And that's the way it's been even in, with Village and planting that. Um, there's so much of what is currently here um, that we're so glad and pleased that God has done, but it wasn't, we didn't know all of that ahead of time. There wasn't a plan to, like, hey, this is, this is a st- we're currently in step uh, 17 of uh, 53. Like, who, I don't know that. Like, who knows? Um, we've just tried to take the next step and allow God to be faithful within that. So let's look then really here uh, at these power, what I want us to really focus on for the rest of our time is the power of Jesus. Uh, And we're going to see the power of Jesus. We've seen it as he's directed. We've seen it in the council as he's protected uh, uh, the gospel. We've seen it as he's gone out um, in previous journeys. And here we're going to see the power of Jesus really displayed in three uh, conversions and three really different conversions. And so um, they respond to God's leading them to Macedonia and they go to the city of Philippi, which was one of the leading cities uh, of that region. Um, uh, it was really called kind of like Little Rome at the time. 
This is a Roman colony, um, and it was a lot like Rome. Um, the historians, archaeologists, all these kind of things, uh, it was kind of known as Little Rome. And so this is the first establishing a beachhead into Europe um, with the gospel that we see taking place. And the first thing that we see is the conversion of Lydia. Um, as they come, they enter into the city, they stay a few, a few days, and then as we've seen Paul's uh, missional strategy, he starts with God-fearers, he starts with uh, theists in the sense of, of Jews, um, in people who believe in Yahweh. Um, now, they, this is a Roman city that doesn't seem to appear to have a synagogue, and so he looks for where would God-fearing Jews that happen to be here, where would they meet without a synagogue? Uh, and the, he tries to find a place that they would have assembled to pray uh, on the Sabbath. And, and so he goes outside of the city gate to the riverside where we suppose there was a place of prayer. I'm not sure exactly how they supposed all of that, but sure enough, there they are. And there they sit down and they spoke uh, to the women who had come together. So there's some women that are there. Uh, they don't mention any men, so uh, heathen men, women taking the lead here uh, within that. And uh, they have this woman, Lydia, and Lydia comes to faith. Um, Lydia is a, a, someone who, a seller of purple goods. Purple goods were expensive. They were associated with royalty. Um, this makes a lot of sense. She's from Thyatira, which is the center of the kind of purple dye business at the time. Um, she's an entrepreneur. She's left there and come to Philippi and set up a business. Um, we know she's wealthy because they start to meet in her home. Her home is big enough. She owns a home. It's big enough uh, for a household, which probably means servants. Um, and it's essentially in her home that the first church in Europe is planted. Um, incredible, right? We see that she's a worshiper of God in, in verse 14. And we see that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul was saying. God is active again. It's not Paul's uh, amazing eloquence, as he will admit in other letters. Um, it, it's not his oratory skills. This probably looked more like a picnic uh, than a church service, sitting down um, uh, in, 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 on a riverbank. But God is at work. It's the Lord who opens her heart to pay attention and to hear. And God's grace, grace saves her. It's God's saving initiative. It's his grace uh, that is at work again. And we have the first convert in Europe, a wealthy woman. Now, what's interesting about this, right? First convert in Europe, taking new territory, all of this. And it just is kind of quiet and unassuming. This one is. We'll get to the, non, we'll get to the very assuming ones in a minute. But this one's just this quiet, unassuming event. We read that Lydia is baptized along with her household. Um, we're going to see another household baptized here in this chapter. We look back to Cornelius, how his household heard and believed and were baptized, and that's the order that it happens in. So Lydia, um, as we read through this, is what's happened before, is what will happen with the jailer in a minute. Um, no doubt her whole household has explained uh, the gospel and those that believed are baptized. Baptism in the New Testament is always based on a personal faith. And so she's sharing her faith, her household, Really, her house becomes the, where the church will meet. A wonderful example of generosity and hospitality at work. She's generous um, with her resources, of which she has um, plenty, um, but is also hospitable. And that's important for us, um, the, the people of God um, model that. 
Um, it's so important that, that uh, Paul, when he's talking about elders and the qualifications of them being able to lead a church, hospitality is one of those things. Um, and hospitality for us, I think we can associate with like entertaining. But hospital, biblical hospitality is not the same as entertaining, right? Entertaining generally means you inviting people that you want in your house. Um, and it, it's associated with, uh, you know, uh, kind of putting out the best and, you know, you're trying to entertain. We're trying to, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but hospitality is different. Hospitality is allowing people into your home, not for the sake of entertainment or to impress them, um, where everything is just right. There's a place for that. Um, but hospitality is welcoming in the stranger, those that aren't on your trying to, you know, impress list. Hospitality means welcoming someone in who can't welcome you back, right? That's a real Northern Irish thing, isn't it? Like, oh, these people invited us over, then we have to invite them over. Like, there's this kind of reciprocal thing that has to take place, more so probably in the country. But, um, but that's not hospitality. Hospitality is my home is open. My resources are, are, open, are held op- with open hands. Um, these are the means by which the Lord will use to advance his cause and kingdom. Hospitality serves the church. It serves Jesus and his kingdom. Um, Thomas sent me, I don't know, in his timeline or something, um, a tweet from our, our church uh, Twitter account from six years ago. Um, and it was the announcement that we were moving. Um, we had started a Bible study in our living room. So our church started uh, in a house just like this one did. Um, but this was, hey, we've kind of outgrown that and we're going to meet in the upper room uh, in the Garrick, <laughs> in, in, in a pub down in the city center. Um, that was six years ago. That's really when our, our church really started to take some kind of like shape or form. It wasn't just kind of random people showing up on a Tuesday night, um, which it was for, for a little while. Um, and we'll celebrate our fourth kind of anniversary, our fourth birthday in a few weeks um, of when we kind of publicly launched our church. But there was really two years there where um, it was this. It was meeting in homes. It was opening up the scripture. It was table fellowship together. And this is still at the heart of our church, our missional communities that meet in homes throughout the week and do this kind of work are central to our life together. Our homes, table fellowship for us is mission on community is one of our values. Our events, um, right? Yeah, sure, they're they're fine. Um, But they only go so far. The backbone, the mainstay of of our fellowship together happens in these kind of ways with hospitality. And we see Lydia Um, central to that. We then see this slave girl that's transformed. Jesus transforms a slave girl. Um, As they're going out of their place to pray, they were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. This is verse 17 now. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And she kept doing this for many days. And Paul, having become greatly annoyed, (laughs) turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. So what's happening here? Because this, again, can be a little confusing. Why is he annoyed that she's saying things that are absolutely true? Um, This uh, phrase, a spirit of divination, uh, in in the literal reading is, is is, is spirit python, right? This like serpent. Now, when we start talking about a spirit that's a serpent, your mind should immediately go back to where? Genesis, right? Right back to the serpent. Um, and so, but in, in, in Roman mythology here, the python 
uh, is what guarded the temple of Apollo. Um, I got to see one of these temples of Apollo uh, this summer in, in Turkey and see that. Uh, and over time, Python really came to mean a demon-possessed person um, whom through the Python spoke. And so uh, Paul and this team obviously understand as we see through the scripture that she's, demon, she's, she's possessed by a demon. And so uh, she's a slave. Locals uh, would go to her and really through her clairvoyance, uh, locals thought she was inspired by Apollo and the Python and they would pay her owners money to have her tell their fortunes, predict the future. And her owners made a lot of money from that. And so for many days, verse 18, it says, she's uttering words, but the words that she's uttering are absolutely true. That seems strange. You think Satan would come along, demons would come along and try to say things that aren't true. But she's saying things that are absolutely 100% true. These men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And for many days, this kept going on. She'd follow them and proclaim this. And so what's happening here? This is Satan, right? Satan is cunning. Um, his tactics are, are often, we think Satan would just come and, and say the exact opposite. Satan wants to just tell you uh, lies. Everything he says are lies, they're deceitful. He's just trying to like uh, darkness, light. All, it's just complete opposites. And that is true. But often one of his tactics is to seemingly align with God, to confuse, to water down, to distort the message. And we see this all the time today. So-called Christian preachers uh, coming with like prosperity gospel, right? Saying enough things that are true but within that are all sorts of things that are not true. And it distorts the message to where it's not the gospel anymore. Generally, if there's a word before gospel, prosperity gospel or whatever it is, feminist gospel, whatever, that should be big red lights and sirens. We're trying to frame the gospel in a certain kind of way. And this is what's happening here. Demonic, yes, these guys, these, these guys are true. You should listen to them which then gives the message that we're, we're on the same team. Oh, well, this, this must be true. What she says must be true. This is, all, this is all just kind of in one big pot of truth. And that's not the case at all. And so Paul recognized this and finally has enough um, after several days. I wonder why he didn't do it at the beginning. I don't know. Um, maybe he knew what would happen to some degree. Um, and so finally he has enough and he casts out this demon. Now, what happens to her and what happens here is what always happens to some degree. When Jesus transforms our life, it always upsets things. In this case, it upset the local economy. Her owners, her employers, her owners, because she was a slave, now are losing money. She doesn't have this uh, spirit of divination. She doesn't have any fortune telling she doesn't have any of these kind of powers anymore. And so they're losing money. And the gospel, when it transforms people, will always divide. Some people will see the change, see the implications of the gospel, and, and react warmly to that, think that's amazing. But other people, not so much. Some people won't like the implications of the new you, the new creation that God has made, the transformation, the power of Jesus in your life. And so we see people go from um, to sexual purity. Those 
sexual partners before, not so impressed with that. They lose out. People come to be generous with their finances. But the people who were involved in the finances before feel like that's a loss. We start to reallocate our time. And people react negatively to that. Often the light of Jesus shining through you repels some because it reveals the darkness that they're in. But it will attract others to that light who see the change as good. And in the midst of that, God is sovereign over all. And this is the same thing that happens here. Jesus has uh, set her free from slavery um, of the demonic power. And in that then starts to uh, uh, alter her circumstances with her earthly uh, slaves as well. We see the power of Jesus continue to move out then. Um, the implications, uh, 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 the, the slave owners start losing money. They're not happy. And so they trump up charges. They whip up a crowd um, and, and say, hey, these guys are teaching things that are against Roman custom. Now, that wasn't true. Um, but they're, they're causing trouble. Rome at the time doesn't like any kind of trouble. They don't like mobs. They don't like any of that stuff. And so they come in and they crack down. They take Paul, they take Silas, and they beat them with rods and they throw them in essentially a dungeon. After they've been beaten, they're bloody, they're bruised, they're in pain, thrown into a dungeon, and their feet locked in stocks. Now, Roman stocks would have been in such a way that it basically kept you in an uncomfortable um, position that would have stretched you out. Imagine that after being beaten with rods. And here are Paul and Silas in the middle of the night after this whole ordeal and they're praying and singing hymns to God. And they're doing this aloud. Their prayers are aloud because it says the others were listening. The others were listening. And that's so convicting to me because I've never been beaten with rods. I've never been thrown in a prison. And yet my response to my pain and uncomfortableness often, that isn't really even pain, it's inconvenience, is really to kind of moan about it. Most of, you know, I'm savvy enough to do it internally. But it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a disposition of just kind of moaning. And here are Paul and Silas praying, singing hymns to God. In other places we've read, right, uh, 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 the other apostles, uh, Peter, John, are beaten, thrown in prison, and when they're released, they're rejoicing that they were uh, worthy of that. Incredible testimony to us. And God responds uh, to their prayers. He responds to their singing, to their witness, if you will, by shaking the very prison, by, by sending an earthquake, shaking it to its, to its foundations. So much so the doors are opened. And their stocks, their chains of all the prisoners are broken. And this is what God does. God is in the business of breaking chains and freeing people. Whether that's uh, literally imprisoned or like the slave girl who was, who was just as imprisoned. None of us are in prison this morning in the sense that you've been locked up against your will in a physical kind of way. But many of us feel imprisoned. We battle addictions. We battle our inner demons, if you will. But God is in the business of freeing that, of breaking the chains within this. And God is doing this in very real ways. This is the same God. 
We see the jailer who is who's responsible for these people um, after the commotion of the earthquake, after he sees the doors are, uh, are open, he just assumes, as you probably rightly would, that everybody bolted, everybody, everybody took off. Um, and he knows the consequences of, of the failure of his job, uh, and he's getting ready to commit suicide. And in that moment, Paul stops him and says, no, 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 wait, 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 we're all still here. We're all still here. And he calls for torches, he calls for lights, uh, to be brought down and seeing that they're all still there. What is his response? <laughs> he's heard, he's listened to their prayers. He's heard them singing. He understands to some degree um, what's going on and who they worship. And his response in seeing what, what Jesus has done, the power of Jesus, is to ask maybe the most important question that you could ever ask. We see this in verse 30. He calls, or verse 29, the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? And it's incredible. It's normally the prisoner asking the one who's in charge of the keys, what do I have to do to get out of here? What do I have to do to be saved? What do I have to do to shorten my sentence? What, what, what do I have to do to get out? But in the upside down way that God works in his kingdom, it gets flipped on its head. It's the jailer, the one with the weapons, the one with the authority of Rome, the one who could beat and imprison coming and asking them, how, how do I get saved? How do I have what you have? How do I, how do I know this Jesus? How do I tap into this uh, miraculous power? And their answer Verse 31, they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. It's a saving power if you'll believe these things. The answer was to believe in Jesus. Believe in the gospel. Believe in the person and work of Jesus. We've titled this series, Living as Resurrection People. It's believe in that. Believe that Jesus is alive, that he is raised from the dead. We see that he and his household believe. They speak to him and to all who are in his house. Verse 32, they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all of his family. All that were there that had heard and believed. This is, this is amazing, isn't it? He washes their wounds, their physical wounds. The dried, sticky blood the open wounds from their beating. He washes them, and then they turn around and they wash him. He washes their physical wounds. And in baptism, they wash his wounds of his soul, the wounds that we have of being fallen sinners. We are raised to walk in newness of life. And what's the result of this? He brought them into his house, he set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. The result was this feast together at, ta at the table, this table fellowship that had taken place. People who were, met, who, were, who, were, who were hours ago enemies, now sitting, eating with each other as family, as brothers. 
Hold the power of Jesus to do something that dramatic and that incredible within hours, within moments. This is, this is, uh, this isn't, yes, table fellowship then and it is now in the Middle East, um, very, very important, right? This is why those dietary laws uh, were, were somewhat enforced even with the Gentiles so that they could have table fellowship together. Why? Because it was such a powerful example and sign to those around them, Jews and Gentiles coming together to eat. That didn't happen before. Roman soldiers eating with their prisoners isn't a thing. That's not a thing. But it is now. It is now because of the power of Jesus. We see that um, they are, are released. And Paul does a curious thing here. Um, it seems like Paul's being a bit of, um, I don't know, He's like, listen, uh, you guys are free to go. And he's like, no, we're not going to do it that way. You beat us publicly. You imprisoned us publicly. And now you're going to let us go secretly? No. You beat a Roman citizen. And I love how he kind of puts that in there because that's, they shouldn't have done that. So when the magistrates find out he's a Roman citizen and not just some like Jewish scoundrel, they know they've screwed up. Right? Um. So, but why does he insist on that? Is, is Paul just being a bit of a prima donna? Is he just worried about his own reputation? What's happening here? Why is he making them come and publicly apologize and publicly escort them out? Um, I, think, I think what's happening here, scholars um, assume and, and are reading into this, Paul knows that he's establishing a new church here. And he knows he's going to leave. What Paul's doing is protecting this new church from the authorities that are there. If he just leaves secretly, then everybody just assumes that these people are, are the lawbreakers, they're outlaws, this is an illegal kind of thing that's happening here, it's outside the law. But because it's a public apology, because it's a publicly escorting them out of the prison, the reputation of the church, the reputation and protection of the church and those who would then join it um, is preserved. And so he protects the church by a public, insisting on a public apology. And here we see a new church is formed in Philippi. We, we know that there's these three, uh, Lydia, the slave girl, the jailer, along with Lydia and the jailer's households, um, and others then that are then added to the faith. Paul will write a letter to this church in Philippians. Uh, the book of Philippians is written to this church. But I want us to look at this new church that's formed here and some of the contrasts that are taking place, at least with these three central characters that we see. We have Lydia, who's a wealthy woman. We have a slave girl who's poor, slave, doesn't own anything. And we have a jailer, working class, blue collar. All very different. Really all three socioeconomic kind of um, bandwidth there. Upper class, wealthy, working class, and then the poor, the enslaved. We see and break down um, racial barriers. Lydia was Asian. She's from Thyatira. The slave girl is Greek. The jailers are Roman. They had all come together 
as equals in the church. Spiritually, they were all in different places as well, weren't they? Lydia is a, a God-fearing theist. That might be you today. A lot of people that I meet are, are, believe in God at some, at some level. doesn't mean that you're a Christian. doesn't mean you're a follower of Jesus. A lot of people believe in God. This was Lydia. And yet it took an explanation of which, <laughs> who exactly are we talking about here? And God opened her heart to listen to Paul and him explaining the gospel of Jesus. You have the slave girl who's tormented by evil spirits. You have the jailer who seems practical and indifferent. As a Roman soldier would be. The way they come to Christ is very different, isn't it? Their conversions are different. Lydia responds to a public exposition of the scriptures, of Paul's explanation of the gospel. Very quiet, unassuming. The slave in a dramatic deliverance of the supernatural. The jailer, a powerful miracle, an example followed by an explanation of the gospel. All their conversions are very different. They're not exactly the same. God's working in different ways. And here we have then in Philippi. Philippi was known as this little colony of Rome, but now suddenly there's a little colony of the kingdom of God. And the first European church is established. The first converts of Europe are established. And that's the beginning of your and I story. This is the inbreaking of the gospel into Europe that would then spread over the next few hundred years. Paul will write this in the, in the first uh, verses three through six to this church. This is the book of Philippians chapter one, three and six. He says, I thank God in all my remembrance of you. Those are some memories, aren't they? They would have and visiting them. Always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. These are the first day that we've just, the first days that we've read about. From the very beginning, even until now, as he's writing this uh, later to them, their partnership in the gospel. And he says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of, of Jesus Christ. He's writing to encourage them. Hey, that thing that Jesus did by the riverside, Lydia, Jesus is going to complete that. He's going to finish that work. I wonder who read the letter. Paul would write this letter, and it would have been brought to Lydia's house where they were meeting, and someone would have had to stand up and read that. We have no idea who it would have been. I just wonder, with just some imagination, would it have been maybe even the slave girl? Would she know how to read? Would it have been the jailer maybe who would have got up and read this? Paul's encouragement to them. That day of deliverance that God delivered you from that evil spirit, young girl, He's, he's still working. He's going to complete that work. That day you almost committed suicide out of desperation to the jailer. The day that it got so dark you were willing to end it all. And Jesus shows up in miraculous power and saves you. He's going to finish that work in you. He's praying for them with great joy because of their partnership in the gospel. And encouraging them that God is faithful and he will complete his work in them. And I take great 
um, hope and encouragement from that. This is the same God that is active today. So it doesn't matter your, your background, right? It doesn't matter if you're Greek or Roman or Asian or Irish or British or whatever labels we're using today. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what your bank account reflects. It doesn't even, maybe some of you are like, man, I, my experience with God just feels like Lydia, kind of quietly by the river. No one kind of noticed. There wasn't earthquakes or beatings involved. Same God, same power, doing the same thing. That's okay. Hey, praise God. I'd rather not have the beatings and jailings and all that. Like quiet conversion because I had a a Christian um, mom who was just faithful and took me to church and my dad became a Christian and boring Christianity. Praise God for boring Christianity. It's what we were praying for this morning. May our kids only know boring Christianity. May they never have, I got beaten and thrown in jail stories. They might But maybe that's your experience. Maybe your experience is, I had a sword and was ready to end it all. And for whatever reason, I'm still here. All of these things coalesce because of God's dramatic power working together to accomplish his will, to reveal the good news of grace. That it doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter your level of education. It doesn't matter your socioeconomic status that we are all welcome at this table. The enemies come together, the Jews and Gentiles, the men and women, all come together under the gospel and we come together at the table. And we feast particularly on this meal of bread and wine that are this tangible things that we can feel, that we can taste, these reminders of the good news of Jesus that have all of us in the same room today. And not just this room, but houses of worship like this across our city, across our country, across our globe. That you have brothers and sisters that you've never met who don't speak your language, that have different colored skin. But if you were to go and meet them or if they were to come here, we'd be at this table together. And that's the power of the gospel. That's the power of Jesus. Let me encourage you this morning, if, if, if you've never responded to that, uh, my prayer is that God would open your heart to pay attention to what he is saying like he did with Lydia, or that he would do something miraculous in your, in your life, that even today would be the day of salvation. And for those of us, um, that we would never lose the wonder of what God has done for us, that we'd be encouraged in what the power of Jesus still is today as we go out on mission together, as we offer hospitality, as we are generous as we are, see ourselves in the right identity of, of sons and daughters of God and that we would live in light of that, that we would live as resurrection people, that our lives aren't the same, that we are not the same, that we are different because of the power of Jesus in our life. We're gonna stand and come to the table uh, here after I pray for us. And for those of you that do know Jesus, um, we get to put this into practice week after week. Um, there'll be two stations of bread and wine Um, If you're a follower of Christ, come. You can tear bread, dip it in the wine. We remember uh, Jesus' body broken for you, his blood shed for you. 
Um, if you're not a follower of Jesus um, today, we'd offer you to forgo this, but to receive Jesus, the bread of life, as he calls himself, and then join us at the table. Um, let's stand and pray. There'll be gluten-free provision on this side as well. If you need that, you can just make your way over here. Um, stand with me, and uh, let me pray and, and uh, bless our meal.